Hello and welcome to the weekend wrap for the week on Wednesday. I am your host Ben Davison and it is Sunday the 29th of October in the year 2023. I hope wherever you are around Australia or indeed around the world you're having a wonderful day. It is a beautiful sunny day where I am and I hope the same is true for you. Firstly I want to discuss the Albanese visit to Washington, his state uh, visit, which is what it was, and of course some of the insider's analysis, or what I would call, I mean, it's almost laughable to call it analysis, quite frankly. Look, we have to put this visit into its proper context. The United States at the moment is in the midst of its own political chaos. This week, there have been half a dozen different speaker candidates from the Republican Party. They finally settled on a candidate to be speaker who is, quite frankly, to the far right of uh, of Donald Trump. In fact, may even be to the right of Steve Bannon. Quite a terrible, despicable choice, really. But nonetheless, they finally settled on someone. Insider's analysis of Joe Biden having Anthony Albanese come to visit was really wrapped up in some kind of uh, thought process around doing it despite the situation in the Middle East. Now, There's no question that that is part of the international discussion and Anthony Albanese uh, and Joe Biden have both mentioned that in their various appearances uh, together this week. But we should remember that America is not Australia. Our political systems are different. The American presidency is an imperial presidency. By which I mean it was created at a time when most countries had, quite frankly, kings. And the powers of the American president are not dissimilar to that of a king in many ways. They are the head of the military. They are responsible for all foreign affairs issues. They have a power of veto over the democratically elected Congress. And... At a time when the Congress is controlled by a dysfunctional Republican Party, it serves Joe Biden and the Democratic Party to remind the American people of the imperial presidency. And that's what a state dinner is actually very good at doing. It highlights the importance of the president, the position of America on the global stage, how the allies of America are interact with the president in a imperial presidency way. None of this was covered on insiders. And I just I found it quite hilarious that these uh, professional <laughs> uh, journalists just could not fathom that there are domestic politics involved in the decision by Joe Biden to go ahead with this state visit. Of course, the AUKUS deal is part of it, and Joe Biden wants the AUKUS deal. There are many, many uh, Democrats who want the AUKUS deal, as there are many Republicans. And quite frankly, the sort of focus on insiders about whether or not AUKUS would go through was 
a little overblown in my view. The last 10 days or so, the American Congress has been unable to pick its own leader, even though it has a clear uh, majority Republican caucus. So this idea that somehow or another AUKUS is in doubt because it hasn't passed yet is ridiculous. Quite frankly, it's just a matter of you can't pass uh, bills through the Congress if there is no Speaker of the House and there has been no Speaker because the Republicans are dysfunctional. For Republicans to block AUKUS would be a huge own goal uh, no Republican candidate for president has talked about uh, stopping AUKUS. And while there are many views in Australia about AUKUS uh, and whether or not we should have nuclear submarines, and my view around nuclear power is that the, we don't want it here, we don't need it here, but the, the level of analysis I found on Insiders today was very, very shallow. And this kind of... Uh, almost degrading view about what Anthony Albanese was doing in Washington. I mean, there was a $5 billion partnership announced with Microsoft that will create hundreds, if not thousands of jobs in uh, WA. There are, I mean, the AUKUS deal itself will create jobs in WA, South Australia, uh, probably Queensland and the Northern Territory as well. There was an announcement about uh, rare earth minerals. These are critical minerals for the energy transition, critical minerals for telecommunications. Uh, these things were all sort of skimmed over as though, oh, well, they're just trying to get together a whole bunch of different things to announce. Well, yes, because when you're conducting a state visit, you do it for a purpose. And these are important critical things. The idea that we need data centers and we need more people who are more capable on cyber, on cyber security, on telecommunication security. You only need to look at some of the devastating cyber breaches that we've experienced over the last two years or so to know that having more capacity, more capability here will be a fundamental improvement for Australian businesses, workers, and families. Yet somehow or another, this doesn't rate on any sort of analysis from insiders. I mean, there's also, of course, the partnership with the United States around emergency management and how we deal with some of the catastrophic, catastrophic outcomes of climate change. America has just gone through some of its worst fire seasons in history. Australia is coming into what is predicted to be a catastrophic fire season. That relationship with the world's largest economy, the most heavily resourced nation on earth, is important. The lessons we can learn from both their successes and failures in managing these disasters. And we're all familiar with some of the big failures. Hurricane Katrina is one that instantly springs to mind. We face some similar challenges. That is an important partnership. It is an important 
thing. There are people from this country who have gone very recently to the United States to help them fight fires, to help them with the management of natural disasters. And there are people from that country that have come here. That is a partnership that is real and tangible and delivers real benefit. I find it just mind-boggling how the media class does not understand the tangible material realities of what government is supposed to do. You know, it's all well and good to make statements, old visionary statements, statements about principle, statements about what is just and what is right and what is fair. At the end of the day, government has to be delivering for the people that have elected it. And that means things like better management of natural disasters. That means things like ensuring that our cybersecurity is up to scratch so that people don't lose their personal identities. They're not stolen from them. They don't lose their bank accounts. They don't have thousands of dollars stolen from them. These are real and tangible things, and yet they get very little engagement with some of these so-called analysts who want to talk as though somehow or another, Australia being a middle power means that we are a go-between. And I found that so disingenuous. You know, much of this sort of discussion on Insiders today was just so superficial. You know, and Van said, they looked like they were on holiday. They were so excited. It was one of the best days of their lives to be in Washington. And I get it. It's an exciting thing to do. But, you know, even the criticism that somehow or another, Anthony Albanese and the Labor government striking a deal to work with the American space and aviation industry so that Australia has more jobs and more investment from their industry into our country is a bad thing because in the Commonwealth budget of Australia, we decided not to go ahead with the boondoggle that was the Liberal Party's space program. Again, lacks a fundamental understanding of how the world functions and operates. Somebody said, that it was a diminishment of our sovereign capability. Well, maybe it is, and maybe maybe that's correct. But is that a bad thing? <laughs> Let me be really clear about this. I love the idea of us going into space. We're big space nerds in this house. The idea that humanity can go out into the cosmos and that that will expand our horizon is exciting, but it's humanity that goes out into the cosmos. You know, this idea that every country is going to have its own space program is ridiculous. It's wasteful. The resources required for every nation state to have its own space program is just mind-boggling. So why wouldn't we work with our closest ally and partner on building up a space program, about being part of their space program. That's what alliances are for. We get the jobs. 
We get to participate in a program. We get learnings and knowledge. We get to share access to the cosmos. And we do it at a fraction of the price without the duplication. For humanity to reach out into the stars, we need to actually come together on this planet. And I find it just so frustrating to listen to Australian uh, commentators or analysts or journalists or content creators or whoever they might be talk about international relations, sovereign capability in such a narrow way. People who for a long time poo-pooed the idea of having Australian flagged ships, which by the way, is a sovereign capability an island nation should logically have, right? Probably doesn't make sense for Switzerland to have a bunch of cargo ships. Makes a lot more sense for Australia. The logic around sovereign capability needs to be present as well. There are things that it makes sense for a country to ensure it can do feed its own people, clothe its own people, house its own people. And the various components that are required to do that will vary from country to country. In Australia, we're an island nation. A shipping fleet makes a lot of sense, right? We're a long way from some of the sources of capital and infrastructure that we rely on, so it makes sense to develop up some capacity in those areas ourselves. Many of our manufactured products come from countries that are either unstable or undemocratic, so it makes sense for us to have capacity to develop those ourselves. We have an aging population that is increasingly dependent on various uh, pharmaceuticals and medical supplies. It makes sense for us to, to develop capacity in those areas ourselves. We are not a very large population, we are very unlikely to be invaded. It doesn't make a lot of sense for us to build a huge military-industrial complex churning out tanks. It makes more sense for us to engage with our allies about buying those. We don't have a huge aerospace industry. It doesn't make a lot of sense for us to try and build our own space program when we have allies that have a much more advanced uh, position when it comes to such a program. It makes sense for us to partner with our allies about that because, quite frankly, the space program is not an immediate need of the people. So I get very frustrated by these narrow ideas, this narrow idea you know, that everything around Australia's engagement with America or Australia's engagement with China is somehow that we're a go-between country. And David Spears said this on Insiders Today when uh, Anthony Albanese made the point that we're a middle power. He said, oh, is that, so we're a go-between between China and America. And Anthony Albanese was actually too polite to put him back in his box in a way that he probably should have, in my view. Because if... David Spears doesn't understand what a middle power is. He should resign or be sacked from the ABC, quite frankly, because being a middle power does not mean being piggy in the middle. It does not mean being the middle point in a communications link. It is a very specific thing. 
being a middle power means you are not a superpower, you are not an emerging economy, you are a developed economy that participates on the global stage at forums like the G20, like ASEAN, like with the World Trade Organization, that you are, as we are, often an invited guest but not a permanent member of the G7, of NATO, that you are part of alliances and international groupings like the Quad, which we are with the United States, Japan and India, that you participate in the UN and in UN actions, as we have done in peacekeeping operations right around the world, in the Middle East, in Africa, in all sorts of parts of the world, that you participate in global efforts around science, as we do in Antarctica uh, and in other parts of the world, whether they're deep oceanic exploration uh, or in partnership with the United States and the International Space Station and International Space going community. We've had Australian astronauts go into space. That's what being a middle power is. It means we don't have uh, an aircraft carrier fleet. We don't have nuclear weapons. We don't look to project military power. We exercise soft diplomatic power as opposed to hard diplomatic power. We engage much more regionally. That's with Pacific nations and Pacific Rim nations and Indian Ocean Rim nations, uh, because that's our area. We're much more regionally focused than perhaps some other powers would be. And that makes a lot of sense. That's what being a middle power is. It's a good position. It's a position Australia has been in for a long time, certainly since the end of the Second World War. It hasn't meant that we are a go-between between different superpowers. We weren't a go-between between the Soviet Union and the United States. We weren't a go-between between the British Empire and the German Empire. We are a middle power. And we have developed that position over a long period of time because it suits the strategic needs of Australia. We have military, financial economic and uh, technological agreements and alliances with the United States. We have trade arrangements, financial arrangements, uh, and open diplomatic channels with China. These are all important, and yes, to some degree, they have interconnectivity. You know, if you pull on one uh, piece of a web, you get reverberations through the rest of it. But David Spears should know better than to suggest that somehow or another Australia is a go-between country. It's insulting. It's degrading to not just Anthony Albanese, but basically every Labor Prime Minister since World War II because we have deliberately positioned ourselves as a middle power, as a country that nations that are developing or less developed can turn to for support and help and advocacy on a global stage with global superpowers who may not particularly hear the voices of some of our Pacific neighbours because they are much smaller, their economies are much smaller, and their role on the global stage is generally considered to be a lesser role. Rightly or wrongly, that's how it's considered. 
Whereas because of our natural resources, because of our strategic position, because of a range of historical uh, contexts and reasons, we have been able to cultivate a very strong position as a middle power. Now, unless David Spears suddenly wants us to develop a nuclear arsenal and build ourselves into some kind of global superpower, which didn't seem to be what he was advocating, to be fair, then he should be celebrating the fact that we are recognised as a middle power. I find it so disappointing because it also shows, it helped me, I guess, to understand why people don't understand what the rules-based order of international relations is about. The fact that David Spears seemingly didn't understand, maybe he was being deliberately antagonistic. I don't know. But let's assume he was being genuine and doesn't really understand what being a middle power is. It also then makes sense that so many people don't really understand what the rules-based order is because the rules-based order in international relations is effectively something that has been developed over 400 plus years. It's not a US imperialist imposition. It's not a conspiracy by a small handful of Western powers. It's actually something that originates from the Treaty of Westphalia. And the basic principle being that a prince is a prince within the borders of their own principality and should be able to govern as they see fit without the interference of other princes in how they choose to govern. Now, that has evolved, obviously, since the 16th century as democracy has developed. And this is the point. The international rules-based order does develop. It does change. It does shift over time. You know, there have been crises in the concept of an international rules-based order. I mean, if you look at the First World War, that was a huge challenge for the concept of an international rules-based order. It led to the establishment of the League of Nations, which, of course, failed in the Second World War, then was an absolute crisis. Out of that came the UN, out of which has come things like the ILO, the International Labour Organization, where now globally there are concepts around decent work, why you should join your union. You go to australianunions.org.au slash wow to join your union. People forget that it was only... 150, 200 years ago, in some cases, in some places less than that, where workers were shot, workers were shot. What the international rules-based order says effectively in various different ways, in various different parts, is that there are some rules that we all agree to. You know, you sign up to UN conventions because you intend to abide by them. There are conventions around how we treat workers. There are conventions around discrimination. There are conventions around equality and equity, the rights of people with a disability, 
the rights of migrants and refugees. These are all things that come out of the international rules-based order, how countries will interact with each other, how countries will resolve disputes, when the use of force is legitimate and illegitimate according to the consensus of the global community. That's what the international rules-based order is. Things like the World Trade Organization come out of it, the International Monetary Fund. Now, there are individual decisions and individual occasions where we may disagree with how those institutions or the decision makers within them apply the concepts of an international rules-based order or how they interpret that into a particular set of policies. I'm not suggesting for a moment that every single time uh, the IMF has made a decision or the WTO or even the UN has made a decision, it has been one that I agree with. But the concept of an international rules-based order is fundamental to peace between nations. Now, don't get me wrong. There has been lots of violence, lots of death, lots of conflict since the establishment of the UN. There's no question about that. But what there has not been is there has not been a nuclear war. There has not been a conflict of the scale of World War II. There have been times where individual countries have broken the rules of the rules-based order, whether they've broken them around trade issues, as we know China has done in the past, and credit to the Albanese government for bringing China back from back from breaching some of those around uh, barley and hay and uh, wine. These are billions of dollars worth of exports, by the way. We know that there have been breaches in the Middle East. We know that there have certainly been breaches uh, by Russia in Ukraine, in uh, in Syria. Uh, Afghanistan and the Taliban have breached uh, elements of the international rules-based order. Uh, this is not a perfect system. We don't live in a Star Trekian utopia yet, but you do have to start somewhere. And part of the uh, rules-based order is that is about when it is and when it isn't legitimate to use force uh, against other actors. Now, of course, we hope that force is never needed, but there are clear rules around how that force should be used if it has to be used at all. It should be used in self-defense. Ukraine's use of force against Russia is a clear example of self-defense. It shouldn't be used to target civilians. Russia's targeting of Ukrainian civilians is clearly in breach of that. Force should be the purview of the state and legitimate state-based actors. Hamas's use of force against Israeli citizens is a clear breach of that. 
Hamas is a terrorist organisation. It is not a legitimate government. Uh, it is not in any way part of the international community. It has murdered innocent Israelis. Force used in self-defence should be proportional so that there is not, for example, uh, if the United States had used nuclear weapons against Afghanistan uh, after September 11, the world would say that was disproportionate. Generally, people say the use of force in Afghanistan was a proportionate response to September 11. There are question marks about some of the proportionality of what is happening in the Middle East. There are question marks about how Hamas has embedded itself in civilian populations. There are question marks about the use of human shields. Obviously, that is against the international rules-based order uh, to use either human shields from the other side or human shields of your own people is also a breach. There are lots and lots of nuances to how the international rules-based order applies. Obviously, not just to conflict, but to trade. And it's so important to understand this. When we have analysis from journalists and uh, politicos going on television and talking about the Middle East or talking about trade with China or talking about uh, alliances with America or talking about votes at the UN, actually having some understanding about what the rules-based order is, where it comes from, how it evolves. It's not a stagnant body. The International Criminal Court is not a long-standing uh, organization. It's a relatively new organization, but it is already doing great work. It has brought, in some cases, former leaders of countries to justice for crimes they have committed against their own people. That is a huge step forward for an international rules-based order that recognizes human rights, that recognizes the sovereignty of citizens. So we go from the Treaty of Westphalia that recognizes the sovereignty of a prince within the borders of their principality through now to a situation where we're starting to understand the sovereignty of people, of the citizens, and their intrinsic rights. You know, this is why we have the ILO, the Sustainable Development Goals, why we have so many uh, agreements now that are focused on people and citizens because it's not actually <laughs> it's not actually the leaders of a political party or a nation state or a terrorist organization or a political movement that the international rules based order is designed to protect it's designed to protect the people and Increasingly, we see attempts to implement it in that way, imperfect as they may be, and they will continue to be imperfect. Of course, they will continue to be imperfect because we are talking about hundreds of different nation states, hundreds of different cultures, dozens and dozens of different languages, 
dozens of different religions and subsections of religions and as many, again, factions of political movements. So the idea that we will come to one set of universal truths that are perfectly implemented in every part of the world is an ideal. It's an ideal. The fact that we've gotten as far as we have in as relatively short time as we have, I think, is an amazing, an amazing thing. And I think it is in the interests of the citizens of the world that our journalists and our political analysts and commentators and content creators and everybody else has a much better understanding and a much more nuanced understanding of the international rules-based order than they currently seem to have. It's easy to protest something that's happening on the other side of the world. It's easy to paint people as good guys and bad guys. It's easy to say they're right and they're wrong for something that does not personally impact you, that does not connect to you as an individual except for what you see in the news. And the pictures that get shown on the news are always, always the most controversial. There's an old saying in journalism, if it bleeds, it leads. There's a reason why car crashes in Frankston and the outer western suburbs of Sydney end up on the news around the nation at 6 o'clock because the pictures are spectacular. It doesn't actually impact the vast majority of the people of Australia, but the pictures are good. And I just would like to see a little more nuance, a little more understanding, particularly from insiders, particularly from those sorts of supposedly flagship political uh, analysts and commentators. That's really all I wanted to talk about today. There's been lots of good work this week from the union movement around uh, the issue of engineered stone. You can listen to the week on Wednesday uh, that Van and I did uh, earlier in the week to hear us talk more about that. Of course, we also have World Teachers Day, which was a huge success. Uh, big shout out to the Australian Education Union and the For Every Child campaign, 98%. of public schools in this country are not funded to the minimum standard. Make a change. Go to foreverychild.au. Sign the letter to Anthony Albanese. This is, again, one of those basic material realities. If we want a better country, we need better schools, we need better funding, we need better support for every child. The money is there. We know the solutions. Uh, The Australian Education Union has mapped out exactly how that money will be spent, exactly the supports that need to be put in place. It's very, very clear how we can support every child in this country to reach their full potential and build a stronger and better Commonwealth of Australia, one that is an important and relevant middle power in the world. Ben will join me on Wednesday for the week on Wednesday. Until then... Remember to be kind to yourself and wherever you are around the world, kind to each other.